hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And don't worry, I got rid of that pesky tally a character who tried impersonating and taking over the show. He is now safely locked up in a closet. So Andrew and I can continue on with our narrative. And let's never speak of him again. I mean, that was, uh, that was pretty horrible. In fact, everything is right other than Andrew still being trapped in Asia after a year and a half. He is still broadcasting from our Malaysian Iroquois History and Legends studio, and I am here at our hometown Canadegua studio. And what are we going to be talking about today, Andrew? Same thing we've been talking about for a while now, the American Civil War. And we discussed Ely Parker in three episodes, but we thought that we would make sure that we covered all the other people that were involved in the conflict too, because it wasn't just him. And the the issue that we have at this point in Haudenosaunee history is they're now scattered as different tribes and bands and nations across all of North America, from New York to Oklahoma to Canada to Wisconsin. And so it makes it really hard to do a, a solid narrative. So what we need to do is focus on each of these different groups individually and see how they fit in. First of all, we're going to talk about the Seneca Cayuga Nation, but that name is not quite right because this band of people are not the traditional Seneca people. They are, but they aren't. They're actually a people group that we talked about all the way back in our French and Indian War episodes. Uh, That's right, Andrew. If you recall, because the, the Seneca Nation was the furthest to the west, Whenever they would bring new people into the nation, so to speak, they would set them up with a village slightly further west. And also people started, other nations were being adopted in to the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and they would be stationed uh, west of the Seneca. And that just kept pushing further and further over until it encompassed a lot of what today is known as Ohio. So uh, we're going to talk specifically about a, a lot of Mingo tribes of the Seneca. When the whole Trail of Tears event happened, we, we mentioned this when we talked about Ely Parker. Most of the Iroquois nations were able to stay in New York. The Oneida ended up moving to Wisconsin. But these Iroquois people in Ohio got pushed out. By 1831, this band of Seneca Mingo agreed to a treaty where they would sell 40,000 acres of theirs in the Ohio Valley for 68,000 acres out west. Well, on paper, that sounds really good, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, and they're near the new Cherokee lands. The thing is, these people were very well off. Uh, They were fairly prosperous. They had been living in the Ohio Valley for hundreds of years. They had adopted a lot of uh, colonial culture and goods, set up their own farms. It was was a, a much different culture than the, the other people from the Six Nations were used to. Since they were already a conglomeration of people, their, their structure was more set up for individual family farms than, uh, than the traditional uh, farming communities. They had so much personal property that they even chartered a big ship to move all their stuff down the Ohio River to the Mississippi River. But this journey was plagued from the start. There was snow, ice, windstorms that delayed them. And it took them a year. They didn't arrive until July 4th, 1832. And when they got there, they soon realized that even doubling the amount of acres from what you had back in Western New York, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio Territory, the land just has no comparison uh, where they were going. It was was rocky, poor soil. Uh, Andrew and I have mentioned it in past episodes, but 
uh, people don't realize from Ohio to all the way to the East Coast just how good the soil is here. The fact that we can grow peaches and apples and grapes and corn and wheat all in the same climate and the same soil, it's very rare. Most places in the world, you can't grow all these things. But the climate is just right and the soil is so nutritious. They were living in one of the best places in the world agriculturally. And then just like that, no offense to anybody in Oklahoma, but the topsoil just has no comparison to the soil we have up here. Not only that, when they got to this area, they found out that the land that they were assigned was also assigned to the Cherokee. You can imagine that would cause a problem. After figuring out where they were going to live and what the Cherokee were going to get and what they were going to get, they eventually settled in what is today the North eastern corner of Oklahoma. More people arrived over the years. Another 300 people set out uh, in December of the same year, but about 42 of them died from diseases on the way. And, you know, just 42, no big deal. Well, that's 14% of your population. So put that in perspective. That's, that's actually a very high number out of 300 just from dying from disease on the way. Anybody that grew up playing Oregon Trail as a child knows how hard it is to keep everybody in your company alive when you're traveling over great distances. It really does put things in perspective with this pandemic we've had going on for the past year. And, you know, one one thousandth of the population has gotten seriously ill and one out of every you know, 10,000 of the whole world population has died. You know, can you imagine if you lost 14% of your town? But we just brush over it like, yeah, you know, 42 people. But to them, that was a big deal. Over the next few decades, uh, small groups of people continued to come a dozen here or there. And over time, uh, they, they started to rebuild a their lives and a new community. At the same time, another tribe was given land directly north of them, and they were called the Wyandant. Who are the Wyandant? Well, I'm glad you asked, Caleb. Do you remember back in the late 1600s when the Iroquois destroyed these pesky Huron tribes up in Canada? I don't remember it personally, but I remember reading about it. Anyway, apparently it happened because I read about it too. Uh, but these Huron people fled south and west trying to uh, escape. And over the years, they were pushed further and further south and west. Then they had to resettle during the Trail of Tears time as well. And now, ironically, 200 years later, they're again the northern neighbors between the Seneca and Cayuga nations. And they remain so to this day. Everything comes full circle. At the time, this whole area uh, was just called Indian Territory. It wasn't called Oklahoma yet. But even for the Iroquois, this area wasn't actually Indian Territory. Indian Territory had borders that were a little more further south. They were technically in Kansas Territory, which remained part of Indian Territory till 1854. And then it was split. Uh, so if, yeah, it, just to keep things simple, we're going to mention that this takes place in northeastern Oklahoma because it confuses me and I'm sure it confuses you guys. I spent about 45 minutes uh, looking at maps before this episode to try to keep things in perspective in my head. This area of land is very unique. Again, we said that the topography is not that great, but it's not like what you're picturing in, you know, um, Wizard of Oz, like, you know, Kansas, where it's completely flat and there's, there's absolutely nothing. There, there are some small hills and rivers and woods in this area. Because this is the point where Kansas and Oklahoma, Arkansas and Missouri kind of all meet together, squished up in this, this area. So it's not great for farming, but it's not an empty dust bowl. 
And it wasn't just the Huron and the Seneca Cayuga. Here, dozens of tribes from all over Eastern North America ended up being settled. And it wasn't great. It's probably one of the worst uh, periods in American history if you were a Native American. But they moved there and they set up new lives. And for about a little under 20 years, people left them alone. That is, you know, until a border war breaks out on the small piece of land right at the edge of your home, where these two massive armies are beginning to form to kill one another. And uh, that brings us to the 1850s and bleeding Kansas. Andrew, we can't possibly go into all the backstory because it's hard enough for us who are doing the research to keep it simple. So you fine listeners and friends uh, will probably get even more confused on a simple 40-minute podcast. So let's try and keep this simple. The Indian Territory divided and the northern part became Kansas. And when Kansas was looking to be admitted into the Union, they were given authority to have their own residents vote on whether to become a free or a slave state. This, this right here is kind of like a, a core part to the United States of American history because things could have swayed one way or another. It was on like the tip of a knife because slave states needed the votes in the House and the Senate. So every time there was a new territory that was getting a large enough population to become a state, you had all this lobbying going on and people fighting tooth and nail, because even as early as the early 1800s, a lot of the northerners in Massachusetts were appalled by slavery. And a lot of the southerners, it was, I mean, that was their fortune. That is how they made their money. So anyway, as Andrew was saying, where all these Native Americans are being settled is right where all this is happening. And people are trying to sway this future state to become a slavery or an anti-slavery faction. And so things are starting to get bloody. You had thousands of pro-slavery and abolitionist settlers swarming the area and trying to settle there and sway the voting. And uh, corrupt balloting is happening on both sides. And then it descends into these pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions that are actually attacking and killing one another. I'm so glad that we've uh, gotten over these uh, divided issues in America today. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, Indian territory is not classified as a state. It, it was a territory which had a, a special designation and slavery was legal there. So eventually, a decade later, when the southern states seceded and tried to form their own nation, you had many native tribes that actually sided with the CSA. Uh, that's Confederate States of America. And I might use that acronym because it's a lot easier than saying the whole Confederacy thing over and over again. Anyway, uh, the CSA rebels against the North. And now you've got this other issue with these tribes. Some tribes, like the Iroquois people, abhorred the notion of human bondage. It, it was never in their culture at all going back millennia. Um, other people didn't care a, a rat's butt about any of this. They just wanted people uh, to leave them the heck alone. Uh, to quote the famous Ted Sandy man, it's none of our concern what goes on beyond our borders. Keep your nose out of trouble and no trouble will come to you. Like almost every war since uh, the 1600s though, the Iroquois found themselves involved in the war, whether they wanted to be in it or not. Many of the tribes, just like past wars, were split on what they should do. 
I feel so bad because it really feels like, you know, I want to be able to say, oh, they picked the wrong side. But it doesn't matter what side they pick. They always tend to just get the short end of the stick. Many of the tribes were split on what they should do. A lot of the more wealthy Cherokee had slaves. Like Andrew said, it, you know, they, they'd been doing it and making money off it. So that it was in their best interest to side with the Confederates. But Andrew said some, especially some of the Iroquois, wanted to side with the Union. But here's the thing. You just put the Iroquois, the Mingo Seneca, amongst 12 other nations are all surrounding them, 12 other Indian nations. So it's going to be very difficult for them to say, no, we're fighting for the Union when you're literally living amongst 12 other nations. In October of 1861, the Confederates and these other neighboring Indian nations had a council, and they uh, persuaded the Seneca to sign a peace treaty with the CSA. In reality, they had, they had no choice. They were totally surrounded. And all the Union forces in the area that April had been called back to the East to help with the war. So there was no one to even back them up. The Confederates assured them that they would take over all the obligated federal payments to them. And of course, uh, in return, the Seneca would make sure that if any stolen property, <coughs> slaves, excuse me, that happened to wander onto their lands would be uh, quickly returned to them. Now, technically, the Seneca said that um, we're signing this peace treaty because we want to remain neutral and we're not joining any side. But when they attached their signatures to these documents, it would come back to bite them at the end of the war. And if they thought that by doing this, they could you know, hold the middle ground and avoid the war, they were wrong. The next spring in Seneca territory at a place called Cowskin Prairie, the Confederates began to assemble a training camp. Turns out that there were very good lead deposits in the area. And what is a great use of lead, Caleb? Fish hooks, or I mean fish sinkers. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a good use. But what about if you want to kill people? What would lead be very useful for? <sighs> really large. You could drop really large fish sinkers on people's heads when they weren't looking. Or you could put them into a barrel and light gunpowder behind it and launch the projectile at them really fast. You could do that too. Yeah, I guess, you know, every, every man to his own, that would that'd be good too. The Confederates really needed these lead deposits. And so they began establishing mines to bring in workers. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I mean workers into Seneca lands to start mining uh, the metal. And then they started setting up shooting ranges uh, for the new troops to work on their marksmanship. So you could see the Seneca are really already occupied by this uh, garrison force. On June 1st, 1862, the Union forces were finally able to send new troops into the region. And they were pursuing the elusive Cherokee general, Stand Weighty, who again, could get a whole podcast episode on himself, but we're trying to focus on you know Iroquois history, not Cherokee history. So we'll leave that to somebody else to do a Cherokee history podcast. The Union Army attacked the camp and the battle lasted for several hours until Wadey and his men were able to escape in the night. About uh, five to 600 heads of horses and other cattle were captured by the federal troops. And this loss of supplies was a really big blow to the Cherokee Confederates. Now, Andrew, although this was, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a very small battle, it had very big ramifications for the United States and the Native Americans of the West. 
and the Confederacy. The Confederates had assured these nations of Native Americans that they would give them protection if they would join them. And then all of a sudden, a small force of about 350 Union men come in and completely tromp the Confederacy. This became a huge embarrassment for the Confederate states, and the Indian tribes would lose faith in them. The Cherokee leadership would then become split for the rest of the war, and some would start to tell the American Union that they were on their side. Then all of a sudden, these Cherokee leaders would be called traitors by uh, other people of the Cherokee. And then they would go and tell the Confederacy, oh, we're still on your side, just send us help. And then they would go back and people would call them traitors for siding with the Confederacy. All unity amongst the Oklahoma nations that were all settled has now been completely shaken with just 350 men coming in and tromping them in this battle. For the Seneca, the war was causing havoc. People just couldn't live on the edge of a war zone. By midsummer, almost all of them had packed up and fled back into Union-held Kansas. And that's a really big deal because, again, they're leaving their farms and every, every bit of property they own. About 10% of the population would die from illness over the next year. Again, just that's a crazy, that's literally what decimated means. Uh, it was cold. There was no nutrition. Uh, the Seneca leaders wrote to the U.S. representatives looking for aid. They didn't have clothes. They didn't have blankets. Their cattle had been stolen by uh, these southern brigands. And the U.S. government hadn't been paying their uh, obligated annuities because they thought, well, the Seneca Cayuga joined the rebels, so we don't need to give them money anymore. But so many of these smaller tribes in northern Oklahoma moved further and further into the Union sphere. And then you started seeing these uh, Southerners, these desperados were raiding them at will. And they didn't really care what side you were on. They were stealing property and cattle. Uh, the most famous leader of these ruffians was called Quantrill. These guys weren't even officially Confederate soldiers. They were kind of like, uh, they were given permission to do this because- Privateers. Yeah, privateers. Think of them like land pirates, basically. They could just go out and uh, raid, and the, the Confederates didn't care because it was causing problems, and uh, they kicked back some of the supplies to the Confederate army. So who cares which Indians you attack? They were even attacking Cherokee that were loyal to the Confederacy, and so this caused some of them to sour on the Confederates and look to the north. Uh, by this time, dozens of uh, exiled Seneca, Cayuga, and Shawnee men signed up to fight in the Union Army to defend their homes. Indian agents encouraged the Iroquois people to remain in Kansas and try not to go back too early because we still really can't defend you guys. If a lot of you want to join the army, that's the best way for us to get down there and uh, take back your homeland. Between 1862 and 1863, uh, the Union raised three home guard regiments. Uh, these were special units made up of mostly Native men. Of course, led by white people, because, you know, white people got to lead them. Anyway, uh, most of the Seneca were placed in the second home guard. And together, these three groups formed the Indian Brigade. And they would be drilled and trained to fight. And then they were assigned to return to Indian territory and fight to retake their homes. And they participated in quite a few engagements. In 1862, they were involved in the Battle of Fort Wayne. The newly promoted Union Brigadier General James Blunt 
was told to assault General Samuel Cooper. Uh, just, just so you know, James Blunt ended up finishing a major general. I think he got promoted again the next year. But at this time, he's a brigadier. For months, the U.S. and the CSA had been maneuvering around each other in Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas. They basically one takes a fourth and then retreats, and then the other person comes in and occupies it. And they're just doing all this for a year and a half. So both are waiting for somebody to make a mistake that they can exploit. And finally, the chance comes. Information comes through to Blunt that the Confederate Army, General Cooper, had uh, separated from the rest of the larger army. Divide and conquer, right, Andrew? So early on October 22nd, Blunt has his men march all night long and get into position. Blunt's troops attack the Confederate camp, and the Union troops with the, the second home guard hit with such stealth that they literally catch the picket lines completely off guard, and they run so fast that by the time the picket lines report that they've been overrun and get to their camp, they are right behind them. So the entire camp has had no warning because all of these Mingos have probably been sneaking up like they were hunting deer, kind of how you picture Native Americans uh, hunting, and just completely sent them into a rout. The Confederates broke in terror. They offered no resistance. And to add insult to injury, Blunt called a perfectly timed cavalry charge on the flank by the second Kansas cavalry, along from the other side with the Kansas battery opening up uh, artillery at the exact same time. The Confederates did not stop until they reached the south side of the Arkansas River. And uh, I had to find out where Fort Wayne used to be at the time, Andrew. And uh, as the crow flies, that's 50 miles. So realistically, that's like a 100-mile retreat, most likely. The Federal forces captured the entire Confederate battery of cannon, their entire supply train, 50 prisoners, and things just continued to get worse for the Confederates because the night after the battle, a snowstorm came through and they were out there without food or blankets or their coats because they just ran for their lives from their camps. So many Confederates froze and the memory of the Indians rushing the picket lines and them fleeing in terror would haunt the dreams of these survivors for years to come. With these and other losses, the Confederates were forced to abandon Fort Davis. Uh, that name might sound familiar because uh, that was their Western campaign headquarters. And it was named after Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. And it was just overtaken by the second home guard and occupied and burned. Another huge embarrassment for the Confederacy. In April 1863, they captured Fort Gibson, but they didn't really because uh, it had been abandoned. So it was more of an occupation that they marked down as a capture, uh, you know, padding their stats a little bit. In early July 1863, uh, the Home Guard saved a Union supply train from being captured by uh, Cherokee General Stan Wadey's men. Early July 1863, all this crazy stuff seems to be happening. At this exact same time is the Battle of Gettysburg and also the Siege of Fort Grant 
is and where uh, Ely Parker is. These three huge events are happening simultaneously, which uh, really helped help the Union turn the tide of the war. Uh, by July 17th, there was the Battle of Honey Springs. That sounds sweet. Uh, the Union Army won another strategic victory and was finally able to reestablish a more permanent foothold in Indian territory. And this battle is really unique for a lot of reasons, uh, the foremost of which is that white people were actually the minority in this battle. It was mainly uh, African-American and Native American troops on the Union forces, and they were taking on a Confederate army that was almost all uh, other Native Americans. That would be a cool painting to see. You know, all these guys dressed up in their Confederate grays and Union blues. That would be interesting. By April 1865, Robert E. Lee had surrendered. The war was over for some people. Brigadier General Stan Wadey held out. He continued to go out in the wilderness and elude Union forces, and he didn't actually surrender until June 23rd, which makes him the last Confederate general to surrender. So it was a native Cherokee person that actually was the, the final peg to finish the war. Then what do we do? We've got everybody left to pick up the pieces. A commission was established to work with the tribes who joined the CSA. And since, you know, they cast their lots with the rebels, the United States government said, you know what, all the treaties are voided. You guys need to drop new treaties and we'll sign them and ratify them. And yeah, you guys are going to have to make some serious concessions. Do you remember who was on this commission, Caleb? Yes, and it became controversial. Uh, Ely Parker was appointed to this position. And we mentioned before, the main problem for the Seneca, Cayuga, and Shawnee was that they'd been forced to sign this pact, despite the fact that they didn't want anything to do with this. And it was a constant back and forth, but the end result was the Iroquois were told that they needed to leave Kansas, and some of their lands would be given to other tribes in exchange for payment. And the, the tribal leaders really had no way of bargaining anything. They, they had no leverage and had to agree to terms. Over the next 70 years, it's the, the broken record story that just keeps going. Their lands were under constant threat from speculators, and they, they constantly had to be vigilant and diligent and make sure that things weren't siphoned off from them. In 1881, another 100 Cayuga from Canada and uh, upstate New York came and joined their brothers and cousins in Oklahoma. And then in 1937, they were officially joined together and incorporated as the Seneca Cayuga tribe of Oklahoma. But more recently, within the last generation, they've changed their name to the more appropriate Seneca Cayuga Nation. This left the Cayuga in New York with no ancestral homeland. And so even still to this day, the, the Cayuga people are doing legal action to try and get some of their lands in New York State returned because they're the only ones without a full reservation. So that's the Seneca Cayuga. I don't think there was a single thing in this episode that I knew before I started researching. How about you, Caleb? <laughs> Andrew, I, you would be amazed how little I knew about the Civil War uh, two years ago, and you would be amazed how many freaking books I have read this past year. I bet I've read 10,000 pages. So I feel like I, I, I really know my stuff, but... But even when you you uh, you read these Civil War books, you really just get the stuff Andrew and I are talking about here glazed over because because even the big the big novels of the Civil War, you know, it mentions some of the raids into Indian territory, and that's about it. 
So uh, some good news, though, and that is this is actually a three-part series, right, Andrew? Yeah. Uh, that we're going to be doing on some other nations in the Civil War. Uh, I know some of you have been pretty depressed not hearing from us, but we also have some good news, and that's Andrew, I think we can say this, is going to be back in America for a while. So we can actually record like somewhat okay quality episodes. Don't get your hopes up, guys. We're not going to be pumping out stuff every week or every other week like the old days. Caleb and I got kids, we got families, and I'm still working on my uh, degree. But we can guarantee, we can guarantee two new episodes within the near future. Yes, we can do that. And then we'll go from there. Andrew and I have a whole bunch of stuff on the back burner, but it's been it's been simmering on the back burner for a while now. So next time we head north to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and we won't be talking about the Packers though. We will see what the Oneida Nation has been up to. Be sure to like us on Facebook, guys, and uh, leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. You'll notice there were no ads as usual because Andrew and I do this out of the goodness of our hearts and out of pure enjoyment of uh, talking with you guys. And make sure that you do subscribe on your podcast apps. Don't unsubscribe because you never know. It may be several months between episodes, but if you unsubscribe, you'll never know when one comes out. So stay in it for the long haul. Thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful day.